0: Hello and welcome to Nolan Me, Nolan You, a podcast which celebrates the work of writer-director Christopher Nolan. I'm your host, Emily Murray, and today I'm joined by film journalist Emma Warman to review the filmmaker's latest feature, Oppenheimer, which releases in cinemas on the 21st of July. And if you haven't seen it yet, don't worry, this review is entirely spoiler-free. Hello, I'm on, and welcome to Nolan Me, Nolan You. It's your second time here.
1: <laughs> yes, glad to be back, and uh, really excited to talk about this film with you. Because um, yeah. I know how much of a, a fan of this Christopher Nolan guy you are. <laughs> never, uh, never
0: heard of the man. Never
1: heard of him. <laughs> like, literally, even though you sit in the wrong seat. <laughs> at IMAX I'm like you know what I need to experience this movie for the first time sat next to Emily Murray it needs to happen so I did not sit in my usual perfect seat <laughs> I changed my plans for you and I'm glad I did yeah because we saw it
0: together didn't we, we um, did. was it like half 9am on a Wednesday morning yeah. I was very tired because my train from Manchester was at like 5.50am um yes. We managed to sit together, and yes, we did fall out over the perfect seat in the IMAX. <laughs> I like to be more in the middle, whereas you're like back
1: row. Back, especially for the BFI IMAX in Waterloo, back row is where it's at, because not only is the legroom phenomenal, and the legroom—I mean, I saw what you were doing. I mean, you're, you're tiny. You had to like do things with your legs. It's a three-hour film, you know. You need that legroom in the back row, but also like. You're not, and I, I wasn't doing this too much, granted why I was that, but I was doing a little bit that you're moving to the left and the right in order to sort of you know get the full impact that there's so much to take in on IMAX screen. If you're in the yeah. back row, you don't need to do that. You just look at the screen, you take it all in without having to move. So next time, when we're in the BFI IMAX Waterloo, Emily Murray, <laughs> you, I'm taking you with me to the back row. And wow, I'll change your mind on this.
0: Funny you say this because <laughs> I was very lucky to. So we saw it Wednesday morning at BFI IMAX in 70 millimeter. How the man intends everyone to see it if they are able to. Yeah. Um, anyway, the next day I went to the red carpet premiere, very swish, mm-hmm. uh, for round two in like round two in like less than 36 hours because I clearly have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and we had allocated seats at the BFI IMAX, and we put on the second row from the back. Okay. Okay, and I do agree...
1: Thank
0: you! (laughs) I was going to say, I do agree the leg room is better. I think I just need new glasses. I think I've had the same glasses for like 10 years now or something ridiculous. And my optician's always like, your eyes are getting worse. You need new glasses. But I'm just... My glasses aren't broken. (laughs) My eyes are broken. (laughs) This is why I don't like to be right in the back because then it gets not blurry, blurry. I know it's a big screen.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying, you know, I. BFI, I'm as big screen in the UK. I think you'll still be able to follow what's going on. <laughs> just about.
0: So it was, but there was more legroom, room, second row for the back. The best. But we did see it together for the first mm-hmm. time together. So that's why I thought we'd get you on the podcast. But also, we have to talk about what what also happened last week. Come on, it's a big week for you. Yeah. Big week for me in terms mm-hmm. of
1: people we spoke to. Very true. Very true. So I got to spend an hour with Ludwig Goranson, uh the composer of this film, uh, who I've been a massive fan of for a long while now. Um, I think the first time I really took notice of him was Creed, um, the fantastic mm. score that he did for that Ryan Coogler film, um, which still has one of my favourite sort of, I guess, score needle drops of all time, which is when is in the final fight of that film, and then the Bill Conti kicks in. The adrenaline that I felt in that moment, it was so perfectly deployed. Uh, but that score is fantastic. you since obviously gone on to do uh, Black Panther, for which you won the Oscar, mm-hmm. uh, The Mandalorian, which is a fantastic, very memorable, very catchy theme that I've played and replayed and hummed <laughs> a lot. Uh, Obviously Wakanda Forever as well. He did Turning Red. That score is great. Uh, Yeah, he's just a very, very talented dude. So it was fantastic to spend an hour with him. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when this podcast is going out in relation to when my chat with Ludwig is going out. Because not only did I do it for the Beta Black podcast, but I also uh, have a longer piece, maybe it's dropped already, I don't know, uh, that I did with him for the Curzon Journal. So... Yeah, there's a lot of Warman and Ludwig content coming for your eyes and ears, if it hasn't already.
0: Also, you listed all his achievements, i listed in my favourite, which is he did the theme for New Girl, <laughs> which I always say to you. <laughs> you
1: do. You do make a point of mentioning it. It's very, very true. Uh, yes, I should redo that entire soliloquy and just said he did the New Girl. <laughs> And that's all we need to know about the man. It's all um, that
0: matters. Um, he's also <laughs> got amazing hair, which is another thing. Like yes. he's the best, he has the best hair <laughs> in the business. I saw him, I think I texted you. I was like, he was mm-hmm. at the premiere. And he yeah. sat like two rows in front of me and my friend. Yeah. Um, and I was like, it's Ludwig, it's Ludwig. <laughs> and text you like right away. Mm-hmm. Um, So that was a big deal for
1: you, wasn't it? Because that was your first time talking to him. It's my first time talking to him. I've been wanting to talk to him for years. I may have fanboyed a little bit in the actual interview. I hope he didn't mind too much. Um, But uh, yeah, no, it was really, really, really cool. But I would wager maybe not as cool as who you got to speak to uh, for this film.
0: Who did I get to speak to? I got to speak to um, Matt Damon, Emily Blunt and Christopher Nolan. (laughs) Did you tell about the pod? Uh, I didn't actually tell them about the pod. Ah! Because I wanted to. I wanted to. But, you know, like, for people who are listening, who don't work in the industry, um, we often get, with, like, big names like Nolan, like, five, ten-minute slots. Like, it's mm. not a lot of time. Yeah. You get ushered into a hotel room with them. And mm. it's like, right, your countdown starts now. And I think you'd agree, Amon, that... There's lots of talking points about this movie <laughs> you Just <know>? a few. <laughs> um yeah i've always wanted well christopher nolan is like the the interview obviously i've always always wanted to do mm-hmm. um ever since i was 13 and saw the dark knight because sort of dark Knight when i was 13 inspired my love of cinema inspired me to write about films so it mm-hmm. feels like it's been 15 years in the making and it finally mm-hmm. happened <laughs> bless the PRs bless mm. Universal for um, mm. putting me in a room, and I don't know if I've shown you the photo. Have I shown you the photo yet? Because I got my video back. I don't oh think God. so. No, we're gonna have a live reaction <laughs> as, as I show, <laughs> which I will. I will also tweet because I, I basically like blacked out the whole time I was talking to him. <laughs> How fast like, was
1: your heart beating?
0: I could feel it beating like through oh my, my chest, but also you have to be like. I'm, I'm, it's a job. This is my job. Yep, this is what yep, I get paid yep, to yep. do. I have mm-hmm. to be professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I walked in. Uh, wait, we're doing a lot. Yeah, I'm going to show you my face. Um,
1: <laughs> this is going to be epic.
0: Look <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> like how happy you know what I that am? is.
1: That is, find someone who looks at you the way Emily Murray looks <laughs> at Christopher <laughs> Nell and Taylor. That is what that is. I love. That's fantastic. I um.
0: He was very. He was very lovely. Um. I did. I did say at the start, it's like, because you have like a bit of like chat at the start whilst they right. set up the camera equipment. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I have to admit, but I've. I said this is quite surreal for me because it was your films that like inspired my love of cinema, inspired me to write about movies. So if, so I've been. So I was like, I've been waiting for this moment like mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. and he was like, that's amazing. Like he was really smiley and i think laughed because i was just sort of like stuttering through as well yeah <laughs> and then um and then yeah i asked my questions and he's a great a great interviewee like mm-hmm. every answer you gave was really well considered and engaging and it was just a really good conversation um and then at, the, at the end i was like thank you and he like got up to shake my hand and it oh. was lovely <laughs> dream come true um yeah. So yeah, I think my interview will be live by the time this podcast goes out, but I will do all the links and all that. But yeah, also, by the way, I just want to say Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, also quite a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They were super funny, uh, super charming. I didn't realise, like, until I was doing my prep for the interview, but they're basically like next door neighbours, like, they are like best friends. And like, so it just was pretty cool hanging out. But obviously for me, like, Nolan was like... I feel like I can now, like, retire, die, <laughs> be happy.
1: <laughs>
0: my job on this planet's done. Um, yeah, because it's really yeah. hard, like, trying to explain to people, like, how much... Like, he literally did, like, change my life and had such a huge impact on my life. Like, I wouldn't be talking to you or even friends with you I'm on mm. if I wasn't introduced to cinema that way. So... And that's,
1: let's be honest. that's That's the biggest sort of, you know, plus to you haven't watched the Nolan film. You becoming friends with me, I think is top of the list. Uh, top so of thank the list. you. Thank you for mentioning that. But yeah, <laughs> no, I, I totally uh, get that. Um, you know, having been friends with you for a while now yeah. and know how much you love lo- love Nolan and his movies, uh, it was really cool for me as a friend to see you get that moment. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to watching the full conversation.
0: Yeah. I am. Um, I I did sort of black out. Like I haven't. I've I've seen I've seen the video footage, and I'm and um, yeah, I have to definitely listen back. But I, mean, I think it was well, good.
1: F- final question on on this before we move on to actually discussing the film. But yeah, I'm curious because you know I've been doing this for a while now, and I do think that in most interviews, if not all interviews if there is any nervousness beforehand, within 30 seconds I'm like settled in and Mm. I'm having fun. Did you ever, I know that you don't have as much time as we want in the situation like this, but did you ever settle down after the first 30 seconds? Or was it just like a full, like, my heart is beating to my chest for the full four minute type thing?
0: I think I just sort of splurged at the start, like like saying, (laughs) like, (laughs) you, you mean a lot to me. And then I was like, right, let's get cracking. And then my first mm-hmm. question was, cause I was so nervous about what to ask because mm-hmm. I don't like, I just wanted, this is like the interview to get right for me. Yeah. Um, and my poor colleague Faye had to deal with me all afternoon messaging her like, <laughs> what do you think to this? Like, I know you've not seen the film, but is this <laughs> phrase correctly? And like, and Faye Blesser was like, she's like, you're probably the ideal person to like talk to this man because like, I just know his filmography. She's like, I'm mm-hmm. sure it'll be fine like you just don't worry and my first question was about um the film structure which is obviously very unique which we'll talk about and then his answer was like like oh I'm glad you asked that because structure to me is the most important thing about all my movies and where I start so as soon as he said that I was like okay I'm, I'm clearly on the same wavelength for good yeah. and then I was fine if that yeah. makes sense like yeah
1: yeah yeah 100% Hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, but real. I, I can't wait to to watch and listen to the full thing. It's gonna be it's gonna be epic. Um, yeah. And yeah, I feel like this is the start of. I, I want you to keep on talking to Nolan and just have more and more time with him each time. Um, that's how that's how it's been with me and Denzel. Um, who who is good to my my dude. Like I I, I consider them to be the greatest actor of all time. And the first time I spoke to him was a press conference and I just asked him a question there, that was for Safe House. then the next time I spoke to him was like a five minute interview for a journal for Jordan, uh, mm. which he directed, so I'm hoping the next time I speak to him it will be for longer, we can get into more stuff, we can go deeper because that guy is an absolute legend and as I say, for me, the greatest act of all time. Why hasn't Christopher Nolan cast Denzel Washington yet? It's gonna, Talk it's to your gonna boy, come. Emily. It's Talk gonna, to I will.
0: Boy. <laughs> This is going to be next time I meet Nolan. It's like, so before we get started, <laughs> my friend Amon has a question. Um, yeah. And like, I feel like really grateful that I think this podcast also helped me get there because mm. like the PRs were like, we know about it. We love it. Like we want to make mm. this happen. So God bless. Um, still hasn't sank in. Maybe <laughs> like what happened, but um, maybe when I'm writing it up, which I should mm. do, probably pretty soon. The film's out soon. Mm. Anyways, oh. we've spoke a lot already, and we haven't even <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even begun to review the movie. Um, yeah. I Just want to say at the start, we're going to be spoiler free. Mm. We're not going to dive into too much detail, etc., because I want people to go out there. And just experience it. Um, I also have no idea where to start Amon, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it's, it's a huge film. It, like, it's just huge. Um,
1: should we start with initial impressions?
0: Yeah. Oh, my initial
1: impression was just... Like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, I was very impressed with the film um i'm not sure if i'm ready to call it one of Nolan's best yet i need to sort of go back and think mm-hmm. about it a little bit more and honestly i want to watch the film again you've already sort of you know gone to see it twice yes one of the first things i said coming out of the film was that that is a rare three-hour film that i want to watch again because normally when you watch a three-hour film you're like okay i've watched it it's done it's a long ass <laughs> film i don't really know if i want to put myself through that experience again Not so with this film. It's very, very dense,
0: and there's Mm. a lot
1: to take in, but I just know that there's gonna be more that I'm going to understand, but also more that I'm going to appreciate on a second watch of the film. Um, On your second watch, how how was it for you the second time, and how much more did you take, as opposed to that first time when you're just thrust into the experience and you're almost overwhelmed by the grandeur and the visuals and the soundscape, which I'm very excited to talk more about yeah. of this film because there's a lot going on here.
0: I think you're right that, especially, I don't know about you, but like I didn't want to read too much about Oppenheimer before seeing this movie because I like to go in. Yeah. F- like I want to learn, I want to be absorbed mm-hmm. into that world. I don't know, I'm like spoiling it for myself before, but I just want to go in and experience it without doing so much reading beforehand. Yeah. And you're right that there's, it is dense. It's mm-hmm. it's a lot. Um how do I explain it to my dad? I was like, it's very talky. There's yeah. a lot of talking, there's a lot of talk to- lot of lot of talking, a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um I did think it was, like, best film of the year <laughs> so far on my first watch. <laughs> shock! Uh,
1: I'm not ready to make that statement. I don't <laughs> think I ever will because, as you know, Spider-Verse, of okay, course, yeah. Spider-Verse is my number one, and this, yeah. is, this is not dislodged yet.
0: Uh, Spider-verse, Spider-Verse is my number three, I think, in the movie. What's your number two? My number two is Babylon, which did come out in January wow. in the UK. I Whoa. adored Babylon.
1: I don't think Just... we spoke about <sighs> Clearly not, because this is a shock to me. Babylon <laughs> over Spider-Verse? Yeah. I don't know. I, the only thing I would say Babylon has over Spider-Verse, and even then, the Spider-Verse score is incredible, but Voodoo Mama is still my favorite track of the year. Uh, it's un, untouched. Like, you know, Justin Herbert says his thing with that. Whew. But but, yeah. but, that, but that is that is very surprising to me. Yeah, With Oppenheimer, I think probably the biggest compliment I can pay it is that the film builds and builds and builds and builds to the detonation of the first The Trinity test. The, 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 yep. the Trinity test. Mm. For a number of films, that would be the climax mm-hmm. and then it would sort of come down after that. Not so with this film. Like the, mm, the, no. last, the last hour or so was among the most riveting sort of, you know, things that I've seen in the cinema this year it just continues to build and build and build and the fact that Nolan can still ring the amount of tension and make all the talky scenes as compelling as all the exploding visual <laughs> ranger scenes I think yeah. is a testament to how great this film is that really the
0: last me. act is superb yeah like it's because i think i've seen some sort of mixed reactions to the final act because it's not i think everyone sort of expected to sort of like not end with a trinity test but not end in this way if that makes sense so um and i would say in terms of rewatchability like i got i did get more out of it on a second time in terms of like especially that final act and just really really digging into the complexities Mm -hmm. involved um I've already, I've already got a third view in books because.
1: <laughs> of course, you have.
0: <laughs> this is me, and I think it's one that it's a film I think I will keep returning to and continually finding new layers, new things to enjoy. Like I, like we are going to talk about the sound later, but I think mm-hmm. on my first watch, that was something that was so overwhelming in a score, but maybe I don't think I appreciated it as much. Like, I appreciated the more quiet violins, the cetera, mm. the next time I watched it. It's mm. just such a... It's just such a rich, rich movie. So ambitious, so epic. Um, and there's so much going on. I think it's like a free, It's a three-hour epic to yeah. absorb. And I mm. felt... Like I felt so in awe the first time I saw it, but I said I don't, I don't, I think I don't think we really spoke actually after because I didn't really know what I sort of (laughs) made of it yet. (laughs) Except I knew that I loved it. Yeah. Um, I still don't think it's completely all sunk in. It's just it's Mm. definitely. I agree with you that I don't know how it ranks at the moment in terms of known as filmography because I Mm. I'm still thinking and considering. Yeah. Although I do know it's a goddamn masterpiece.
1: Uh... <laughs> it definitely needs a second watch for me because the pacing is relentless. Um flies and by. The...
0: <laughs> it's three hours that flies by. I don't yeah. someone should have told Ariastavis but Bo is afraid because <laughs> oh, good God. Hated, <laughs> Wait, we saw that, that together as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, no, I, I... I really hated that. That that, that is probably the, the, my least favorite time I spent in the cinema. Not just this year, but in a, you know, maybe in last year too. I really. Didn't
0: this like is that rude film. because you were sat um, next to me for that movie. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it had nothing to do with you, Emily Murray, and everything to do with what in the absolute what in the hell was going on in that film. Anyway, you um,
0: should learn something from Chris Nolan about how to make a three hour movie fly by. Yeah.
1: I looked at my watch, I must have been 30 times watching Birds Afraid. Um yeah, I didn't like it. But anyway, um this the pacing. Film, the pacing. To a degree, the relentless pacing works and works well. Um I especially think it works well for the first maybe two thirds of the film. Um there are times and there are characters. Embrace yourself. I mean, this is my first sort of critique of the film. Okay. Um, okay. But, <laughs> but there are times during the film where I wish it slowed down a little bit to give us more of a sense of feel for certain characters and their relationships, mm-hmm. especially as it pertains to Kitty, played by Emily Blunt, and her relationship with Oppenheimer. Um, I think Kitty definitely comes into her own in the final act. And there's a scene, a very talky scene with her, which is among my favorite scenes in the entire film. At the and Emily... hearing.
0: <laughs> So Yes. At, yeah. at the hearing. Yeah, I know um, exactly. It's it's her best scene in the film. By a country mile. It's I one of the that... best scenes in the film, like <laughs> yeah, full yeah, stop. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I imagine that is one of the reasons why Emily Blunt took on the role because of that scene. Um, it's that good. Um, but there are times, and you do get it in fits and starts. I wonder if you felt more of this in the second viewing, but I didn't quite feel the love between Oppenheimer and Kitty before that scene. Like in that scene, it really comes to the fore. You really get it. Yeah. Um, and there are bits and pieces where she's, like, fighting for uh, Oppenheimer's honour that you see that she is her she is his biggest ally and she's his biggest fan and she's his biggest defender and i like that but there are times that initial courtship between those two characters we don't get to see we're, we're just told after another relationship that Oppenheimer has had with another woman that oh and at this point he's now married to kitty and then emily blunt comes <laughs> on to see i was like whoa that was fast I would not like to Baz, But that's how he
0: that. moved in real life. <laughs> it's true. like He is called a womanizer in the film. Uh, or, um, well, in my... How I'd call it Top Shagger. Top Shagger Oppenheimer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> all that. All that. Um, so, yeah. There are times mm. where I would have liked to, to slow it down a little bit so that we could gotten... So we could have gotten more of a feel for the relationships. How did you feel about that?
0: I feel... I actually kind of disagree a bit, okay. to be honest. Um, okay, convince me. Convince you. So, Kitty, Kitty and Oppenheimer's relationship is interesting. It is a big. It is a big part of the movie. Um, I thought Emily Blunt is incredible as Kitty. I mm-hmm. think her drive, like Oppenheimer, sort of doesn't. He gives up, or is like close to giving up a lot of time, and she always keeps saying to him, like, "Why won't you fight? Yeah. You need mm-hmm. to. You need to fight." And I could really feel her drive there. And mm. like that, and I could feel that he needed her. Like, he needed her to drive him. Like, it's mm-hmm. a partnership. So I do get what you're saying about maybe missing the courtship. But I actually think one of my favourite lines in the whole film, and it's one I can't stop thinking about, is mm. they're at, like, is it like a party? They're at a party. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, quantum mechanics sounds baffling. Like, try to explain it to me. And he says that we're basically all essentially empty space brought together by forces of attraction so strong, it makes us feel that we're solid, so we can't pass through each other, Mm. which I felt was just a very powerful, it was just very powerful to me sort of explaining
1: yeah, like that how is humanity... It's such a way of explaining love. <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cold and scientific. I, I don't think it is. I don't think it is cold.
0: It. <laughs> I don't think it is cold. Um, it, uh. I know, but that, I think like, that, I suppose for someone like Offenheim, that is how they would express yeah, that, their passion. Really really um, I just, I don't know, I just sort of, I was like, yeah, that's for me that was really powerful and I could see why it would draw her in mm. um, and I do, I think they had such a good, they did have such a good partnership um, and also in terms of Emmy Blunt's performance, we have spoken about the hearing scene mm. where she's just incredible and whilst she, she does have this spite and drive I think it's interesting how you see um, her vulnerability as well uh, we see her struggle with motherhood and addiction and just mm-hmm. Oppenheimer just being as we said top shagger oppenheimer. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love
1: this um, place. It's fantastic.
0: <laughs> top shagger oppenheimer. <laughs> um, I did not mention that to Nolan.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Coward, you should I should have been your first question.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually I actually did really like their relationship. I did really like their partnership. Um she's not like I can see why some people might want more of her but also it's kind of Oppenheimer's story that she named after him Mm -hmm. um I think she's one of Nolan's better female characters I know that there has been a lot of criticism about how Mm -hmm. he writes his female characters it's actually something I asked Emily Blunt about um when I interviewed Mm -hmm. her I said like what do you think about this criticism and like was that like like in your mind you took on Kitty. And she basically said that, I can't remember the, her exact words, but she said Kitty's either the best role she's ever been given or one of the best roles. Mm. And she just came to life on on the page. And I think you're right, that as soon as Emily Blunt saw that hearing scene, mm-hmm. she was like, sign me up, where's the dotted line? <laughs> um, yeah. I do think this is a good time to talk about Florence Pugh, though, the other woman in Oppenheimer's life who... She's not in it much, let's be honest. No. And part of me is like, I think because I'm just such a big Florence Pugh fan, I would love to see more of her in this movie because I know what she can do and what she's capable of. Mm-hmm. And whenever she's on screen, she, as ever, because she's a fantastic actress, she's so enthralling. Mm-hmm. But again, it's I don't think it's really about her. So I understand why she is not in it much. But I think you can see the impact she has on Oppenheimer such as like there's a scene where Oppenheimer is quite upset by something that she's done and you know that's a, and he sort of breaks down uh, so that's why I think it was important to include Gene Tatlock, Florence Pew character in the film mm. to see the impact she had on Oppenheimer but I do understand why people would have maybe wanted more because it, because it's Florence Pugh if you get yeah. what I'm saying
1: yeah What did you think of the sex scenes? Um, I I do want to discuss it. I will say this. I don't like how we in the media have sort of talked about it and covered it. I, I wish it wouldn't be, I wish it wasn't their headline going into my watching of the film. Yeah. Because there's a lot of talk in the industry constantly about how sexless cinema has become and especially with Nolan films, there's always a lot of talk about how sexless they are and his beautiful yeah. female characters and whatnot. So going into with that knowledge and with those headlines, what was your impression of those mm-hmm. scenes?
0: Well, I think I've always, I don't think his films are sexless. I think anyone mm-hmm. who looks at Anne Hathaway's Catwoman, it's like, mm-hmm. did did they just miss like the relationships mm-hmm. that Bruce Wayne has in those movies? Mm-hmm. Uh, did no one watch Tenet? Like, which I think, it's just it's because Robert Pattinson's very sexy as well which just helped um <laughs> I don't
1: say
0: so. <laughs> I don't understand the obsession that the media and people do have because I think the headlines were about like prolonged nudity yeah. um
1: which I don't think is really I mean a little bit, but...
0: yeah, yeah. I, th- I don't think it they didn't really stand out to me it just I think they were important to include because you had to it, again, it's sort of expressing, like, the passionate relationship between Oppenheimer and Jean. And you can see that he does, he is very attracted to her. Mm. Uh, which helps you understand, again, like the impact that she has on him. But, like, <laughs> I'm trying to talk about one of the sex scenes without going into spoilers. But it, there's a weird one. Can we say it's, it's, like, a weird one? It's
1: a weird one. I, I kinda, I've been really thinking a lot about this. Okay. Because I think it works, I understand why it's there, and I like that it's not just there for the sake of sex, like, I think it relates to what another character is thinking in that moment, and the film really focuses on that and keys in on that, Mm -hmm. but it is weird. Um,
0: It is weird, yeah. yeah. But I I think it's meant to make you uncomfortable, because as you said, we're seeing it from another character's perspective, and... Mm -hmm. They are uncomfortable, so I think mm-hmm. it's quite effective in that sense.
1: Yeah,
0: I think it was important to include, but it's interesting because if they did cut the sex scenes, it probably would be a twelve A. What rating is this? Fifteen in the UK.
1: Okay.
0: Um, interesting. I think it's partly because of the subject matter, but I mm. <laughs> we will talk a bit about tone later. Like I don't think it's depressing enough like or violent enough like to be like rated 15 because of that i think it's purely the sex that makes it rated 15 mm-hmm. so if you did cut out the sex scenes it probably would be a 12a i've also had some people like apply to me on twitter asking because they want to see it with their like families um or like like would i watch this with my dad i probably would it's just you just would <laughs> look down <laughs> <laughs> for, for the two sex scenes oh, um yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think they were important to include. But also, if they were cut out, it's not like I don't think it would subtract anything from the film.
1: No, no, I agree with that.
0: So now that we spoke about Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, we have not even spoke no. about the man of the moment,
1: Cillian <laughs> <laughs> <Kitty laughs> Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Now he Nolan gave him the lead role for the first time in like six films, and he said. I'm going to eat this up. And he did. (laughs) He Um, did. He did. Now, it's a really fantastic performance. Um, I think it gets better and better as it goes along. Because for me, honestly, as interesting as all the science gobbledygook and the (laughs) build-up to the actual bomb is, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the everything that takes place after the Bombers movies, when you really get to dig deep into the moral quandary and the ethical decisions that have been made and are considered even more in the aftermath of what happens, that's really the interesting sort of the meat of this film for me. And that is where I think Killian and indeed a lot of other actors do their best work. Um, and everything, because this is told from Oppenheimer's point of view in many respects, a lot of it, not just Killian's performance, but a lot of the filmmaking is geared into putting you in that headspace. And Killian's performance in combination with the visuals where he's, at times we go directly into his mind, directly into his eyeball in the first 20-30 sort of minutes of this film where you begin to at least get flashes of what he's envisioning and the creativity and the, all the atom splitting. So the visuals are doing their thing. Then you have Ludwig's score, um, the violin, which is very much the key to Oppenheimer's theme. That's helping you put into put you into his headspace. And then you have Killian's performance added to that entire mix. It's very powerful, it's very potent. I think he does a magnificent job. He's, he's incredible. Um,
0: balls are just the scale of his performance like he's it's a three hour movie and he's in 98 percent of the scenes maybe yeah. mm-hmm. um and he just looks like at the start sort of like when he because he plays Oppenheimer throughout the years and sort of in the scenes where it's, he, he's younger you kind of see the enthusiasm, the brain ticking away, but he just grows so haunted and mm-hmm. Traumatized, and I think you're right that the whole film's geared up at putting you in Oppenheimer's mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the imagery that we see when we go into his mind and we see the world how he sees it is really quite scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really effective. Um, just very smart as well, in terms of like he sees the world completely differently to everyone else. So, by showing us that really helps us understand him as a character. And I think that, mm-hmm. as you said, it does add to the performance. But also, you could have all the imagery, but the performance isn't good. You know. Very true. Very and true. I think Killian's just... I mean, we, we've we always known he's been a talented actor. It feels like this moment's been coming for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And he just he's just alive. He's so alive on screen. Um, even when he's not saying anything, doing anything, he's got obviously he's huge... Blue eyes, and from his eyes alone, you can just tell like this is a man in deep, deep pain. But mm-hmm. he also I think captures like the passion of has or the enthusiasm. It's just it's a very complex, nuanced performance that is incredible. <laughs> basically, yeah, yeah. Um, nah, he he did his thing. He did his thing. <laughs> he- very well. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't really like awards chatter, but um, people are like, oh, is it Oscar-nominated worthy? And, like, it's like, of course. like
1: It is. Yeah. But I just... I, I would like to hold off on that word for as long as possible. I mean, the Exactly. Only- <laughs> I'm the same. I, like, it feels like, you know, the awards conversation is now no longer like a three four month exercise it's like a 12 month exercise and I every time a like film to... comes out <laughs> i'd like to go i mean that being said i, I am the guy who sort of you know uh drumming up the oscar chat for um spider-verse already um yeah, but yeah no it's it's a very very good performance and he's ably supported Um it feels mm-hmm. like you know i thought asteroid city was going to be the most star-studded <laughs> film i saw this year Christopher no. Nolan saw what Wes Anderson was doing. And was like, okay, that's nice, that's cute. Watch this. Uh, like everyone,
0: everyone's in it, everyone. but also everyone gets their moment. It's not like anyone's lost in the mix. Everyone has a crucial role to play, mm-hmm. whether they're on screen for a couple of scenes or someone like Killian, who's on screen for like it all. Basically, like mm-hmm. the, the sheer talent involved here is genuinely. Impressive. I want to talk a bit about Robert Downey Jr. first, because for me, Robert Downey Jr. extraordinarily talented man. um mm-hmm. I think he's amazing as Tony Stark in the Iron Man movies and the Marvel movies.
1: So what 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 movies are those? I never heard about. Them. I know. They made much money.
0: He- um, I don't think so. I think they're quite yeah. low-key, but they did make a lot of them for some reason. <laughs> um, but I sort of I don't know about you, like I think he's incredible as I am Tony Stark, but I I I kinda of wanted him to see, I wanted to see him play someone different. Mm-hmm. And I'm now getting that I'm erasing do little for my brain because that was a terrible, terrible <laughs> film, Burrow Down Jr. Um yeah. but I think he is incredible in this film, like I think he's for me it's like Killian is like the best performance, and then I think Robert Downey Jr. is just also operating on a whole different level
1: yeah, no he's fantastic, he's getting to exercise muscles that he didn't that he hasn't necessarily gotten to exercise Um, and it was really cool and interesting to see him uh, in that light, very interesting decision as well for Nolan to shoot his scenes in black and white um and, and and his character journey is one of the things that I'm really interested to really key in on on, on a second viewing. Um because... yeah, that's what
0: I did. Actually, that is exactly what I did. Okay, I paid more well, attention to him the second time.
1: Tell me what's sort the of stuff that you pulled peeled away from, from that on a second viewing, because the way the film ends <laughs> really intrigued me as, as it pertains to Lewis Strauss, the character that Robert Downey Jr. is playing. Um, mm. But I do love the storytelling choice that Nolan makes to have both Lewis Strauss and Oppenheimer on trial at the same time and to dovetail between those two things. I thought that was genius. Genius, g- yeah. given the timeframes that you mentioned that this film is encompassing, mm. That storytelling, that making the storytelling concise in that way, as concise as a film like this can be, as dense as it is, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought was really, really smart. So, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, it's interesting because this film is called Oppenheimer, and like we're not, like, it is Oppenheimer's show. Absolutely. But as you said, in terms of the structure, which I think is a good time to talk about structure, because the structure is so linked to mm-hmm. Killian and Robert Downey Jr. playing against each other. So you've mm-hmm. got Lewis Strauss, who again, I again try and I don't want to say too much. I like, feel as weird because we spoke about this earlier. We were like we don't want to spoil it, but also it's history, so it isn't spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I think for people who don't want, who really don't know anything, I wanted to keep it. But I mm-hmm. say so I think the best way of putting it is that Lewis Strauss is a politician. Mm-hmm. who has a different approach to the world compared to someone like Oppenheimer, who's a scientist, kind of maybe, I'd say maybe an artist like as well, sort of Oppenheimer, but mm. they have different perspectives on the world um, and they disagree. <laughs> um, just a bit. Just a bit. So mm. the way the structure is, we have the black and white scenes, which is, um, I think it's the fusion. I think they call it fusion. Fusion versus fission. Fission, yeah. So you got black and white, Rodney Jr. perspective, which is fusion, and then Killian Murphy's Oppenheimer perspective, which is vision, and it's their different perspectives on what happened, and it's how they collide, um, mm-hmm. and we can't as you said, we can't see mix between the two. Sometimes we see the same scene repeated, but from a different perspective, which is really mm-hmm.
1: interesting. Yep, very much. Really,
0: so. really interesting. Um. And i think the dynamic between the scenes but also between the actors is just it's just fascinating but i think it's really interesting because when i first saw it i was very much like tapping into oppenheimer's perspective was the second view and i tapped him more to the black and white scenes his trousers mm. perspective um because you could in terms of the politics you could say that he's the Villain of the piece, maybe? But I don't think he is on the second viewing. I, I, prefer,
1: think... I prefer the word antagonist.
0: Antagonist, there we go. Antagonist. Yeah. Um, he's, a, like, he's a dickhead. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think it was interesting, on my second view and I definitely got more out of his mm. layered performance. And I understood, I basically understood
1: mm. him more. Yeah. It feels like, even on the first viewing, especially given the way that film, the, the film ends, it yeah. feels very human. It's very it feels human. Very, human, very human. Guess what?
0: Humans are complicated. Like, if very you're going complicated. Into, if you're going into this film, hoping for easy answers oh, to yeah. <laughs> to nuclear war and what that and their actions, and because I think um, our friend, our mutual friend, Clarice. Um, hey,
1: Clarice. <laughs> hey, Clarice.
0: Um, I we went to the premiere together, and I remember her asking me before, like. What what's its stance and I was like I don't like I, I don't I don't think it has a particularly strong stance I think it's sort of presenting you with everything um mm. which one, is like a
1: typical Nolan thing very
0: Nolan he doesn't want yeah. to lecture you he doesn't want to tell mm-hmm. you what to think he just wants to present to you different perspectives and that's exactly what we get with the whole fusion versus vision Strauss versus Oppenheimer um mm-hmm. saying that it's uh it's very, it's clearly a film that's very disturbed by the choices that these people
1: mm-hmm.
0: made. And it's very urgent. I can tell that it's obviously something important to Nolan and that he <laughs> just is probably like mm. all of us should be worried about nuclear weapons. And, yeah. um, and it, in terms of like how traumatic and depressing the movie is, like it's not mm. happy.
1: <laughs> no, it is not a comedy. But that, but that is part of what makes it so compelling, mm. um, and I love the non-judgmental attitude that Nolan takes. It is takes non-judgmental to it because, in a way, you do understand. And again, this is so good because it puts you in Oppenheimer's perspective, but also in the Strauss's perspective, and uh, the, uh, the, also the scientists that Oppenheimer is working with. They are there. Is there is curiosity and ambition. Wrapped up in the entire thing again, very very human, because they want to see. Part of it is like, can we do this thing that's never been done before? There's that line that Matt Damon has. uh, (gasps) Matt Damon, this this is the most important thing in the history of the world. Yeah, and (laughs) the way he delivers it, you fully believe it, and the film kind of backs that up. Um, Especially not not, not 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 only does the film back it up, but then when you consider the world history. After that, it kind of backs that up as well because we've been living with the threat of this thing ever since its creation. And this is why it's so interesting, all the stuff that happens after the bomb and even as they're getting ready to deploy the bomb because that's when you really start to consider the questions. Oppenheimer himself starts to consider the why instead of just the how. And that's the really interesting stuff for me that I really, really loved.
0: I think you nailed it and you said that it's just non-judgmental. And I think that's why... I think going in, I underestimated how important characters like Strauss would be. And Mm -hmm. in terms of completing this story, like it is, again, it's Oppenheimer's show, but it's so important that we see these characters' perspectives. And I think Strauss is such a... He's just like the opposite of Oppenheimer. And... um. I think he has a really good dynamic with Alden Erreich,
1: who um, yeah. Han Solo, young Han
0: Solo who I, I,
1: I, I'm always jealous that you got to see this with because I would have loved to have seen her ah. when, when he first showed up on screen it must have been a picture Clarice was Clarice, like, she loves like Alden she was very massive.
0: she was very happy um, yeah. I think he's also really crucial because he basically is like Strauss' Senate aide and mm in a way maybe the audience perspective and trying to mm-hmm. understand strauss's perspective of what happened mm-hmm. uh and he has some killer lines i think mm-hmm. we can and he delivers them very well but i think it's so important because because this topic is so complicated and nolan really wants to show all sides to the story So many complexities that's yeah but that's why we need characters like and like to sort of be our perspective and i think matt damon plays a similar role in terms of bringing the audience in because matt damon plays um general groves who is the sort of military leader the military man on the manhattan project um he basically doesn't care about science like he's gotten science is not his world he just has to hire scientists for their project and i think again like he's matt damon is so good at just being instantly I'm just instantly in with him. So I think that's why General Groves is such an important character as well to really bring us into this story. It's really funny actually because um one thing I find interesting about General Groves is he just for him it's just it's just a job. He doesn't have any period of reflection or anything he's just job is done he moves on to the next job which is obviously very again very opposite to Oppenheimer who's Mm traumatised all like and this film is such a good exploration off that guilt Mm -hmm. Um, so I I asked uh, Matt Damon about playing such a not a cold character but yeah he just doesn't really care it's just for him it's just his job was just get the bomb made bish bash bosh none of his business what happens to it Matt Damon was like um Oh, every mention of this guy in history books, like no one likes him. And I was like, Oh, I quite <laughs> liked him. He brings a lot of, <laughs> He brings a lot. Of, I mean because it's Damon is so charismatic and so and he gets so he's funny in it.
1: This is what I was just about to say. Um there's not much levity in this film, but what there is is in large part due to Damon. That first yeah. really meaty conversation that he has when he meets Oppenheimer for the first time as they're trying to figure out is this the right guy to lead this project, has a couple of lines that made me chuckle. And in a film as dark and heavy as this, um, you know, any time to genuinely chuckle and laugh, um, it hits even more. Uh, So I appreciated that, absolutely. Thank
0: you, Matt Damon, for just being. (laughs) (laughs) But it's what I was sort of saying earlier about how you have all these supportive performances and every single one is crucial because they bring a new perspective to what happened. Um, Mm -hmm. This isn't a biopic, I don't think, at all. Um, Which I know is what they've been saying. I just feel Mm -hmm. that in terms of film marketing, it's easy to label it as a biopic. But Mm -hmm. really, it's just about painting a picture of, what happened yeah uh all the roles and just sort of leaving it up to the audience to be like what do you think about it um, mm-hmm. yeah and, and it is urgent um and absolutely because yeah, yeah it's what you say about a scientist he's got like benny Safdie as edward teller he's got his own viewpoints he's got his own perspectives mm-hmm. i think tom conti as albert einstein is amazing some of my favorite scenes mm-hmm are between Oppenheimer and Einstein have just yeah. having this just their conversations together
1: mm. um, what, I mean one of my favourite scenes I'm going to try and be as non-spoiler as I can here but um, when they're talking about their place in history mm. I love that conversation that's um, one of my favourites yeah and the visuals that accompany that some of the best stuff in the film as I said like, I honestly think you know so much of the marketing and rightfully so has been the, the the bomb itself and all the science and the time counting down and all that stuff is good but i think the best stuff in this film is what happens after I the talking
0: it's yeah it, the talking um mm. that said i think we should talk about the trinity test yes. now because i do because I, it's very clear that we both love all these discussions mm-hmm. like and ever sort of arguing about what happened Mm-hmm. and what, whether what it was right, did they kill the world? Um mm-hmm. And that is that is the food for thought. But in terms of the section of the Trinity test and the whole build-up, as soon as they are given a date for the mm-hmm. test, I was like, edge of my seat, heart beating so fast. Mm-hmm. The, the yeah. tension uh, yeah. building up to the Trinity test is stressful. And that mm-hmm. section alone is outstanding, I think.
1: Yeah, 100%. The tension, absolutely. The editing of that sequence is phenomenal because they distill a number of days into about five minutes, essentially. Um, (laughs) And the editing is fantastic, uh, really, really well put together. And again, you do get a bit of the moral quandary Mm. in that sort of whole montage as well because as they say in a very sort of, you know... In a scene that is by turns funny, but also crazy. There was a chance that when they detonated that bomb, they could have destroyed the world. Yeah. Like, they because they're doing something which has never been done before, there is no science to measure this against. They did not Mm -hmm. know if detonating that bomb would lead to the end of the world, and they did it anyway. Chances Um, are... Near zero, it's near zero not and that's, zero it, 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 and, and the reaction and the, t- and the back yeah. and forth between Matt Damon and Kim Murphy in Amazing. that moment is actually quite funny yeah. but it's like also what the hell <laughs> um, <laughs> and so yeah that sequence is great and the editing the score uh, I talked a little, a little bit about this there was never any conversation about him scoring the explosion. It was always about the build-up and the mm. aftermath. And that was how it was written in the script. Um And I think that's right. That's a moment that is just pure filmmaking magic. And the impact of the detonation of that and how they visualise that, I think, is also very well done. Because um, it comes at you in waves. Yeah. And... It is because great. of that it makes it even more powerful I think it's really well
0: done it, it puts you in the room where it happened not to Absolutely. put Hamilton but uh, <laughs> it, it's different to Hamilton because I don't want to be in a room where it happened uh, I <laughs> no, want to be that. as far away as possible but I think the mm-hmm. whole build up to the Trinity test is generally outstanding and I think you're right mm-hmm. it's not about obviously the bomb going off is a a visual feast shall we say mm-hmm. but it's not about that it's mostly about just, yeah, the, those last final moments before they hit that big old red button. Mm-hmm.
1: You feel like you are witnessing history along with them, even though this is history that's already happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really weird sentence to say. I'm not sure if it makes sense, but that <laughs> is how it felt like. It felt like you were watching a momentous moment. Mm.
0: Is this now a good time to talk about the score I'm on? The bit you've been waiting I to talk so. about? Because <laughs> I as, think so. Because I've been I've, very patient.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you can't be patient with me. Because
0: um, you're a very score-focused mind. Um, but I think you're mm-hmm. right about the score. I think the score, by the way, is incredible here. Um, but I think it, it comes alive, particularly in that build-up to that test for me, personally. The violins and the, the, vi- the sound design of the feet. On the, they thump him off the feet, and the Geiger counter noises being incorporated in it sort of adds a sort of like mm. terror. It's just, Ludwig man. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm gonna make a big statement here. Okay. Um, I'm strapping myself in. <laughs> I think the best score for a Nolan movie is Hans Zimmer's work on Inception. Like, not only is Time probably the best track that Zimmer has ever done but the entire score has a number of absolutely phenomenal tracks. I think it's a brilliant score. I wouldn't put this much further below that, what Ludwig has done here. I think it's really sensational. I would need to listen to the score on its lonesome to confirm that, but Mm -hmm. on first viewing, I think it's really something. Um, And I felt the impact of Ludwig's score at multiple moments. I think the first time was actually in the first 15 minutes or so, and I think I looked over to you at this point and sort of just like threw my hands up at the screen and went Ludwig oh my gosh because the string <laughs> yeah. work the solo violin uh, sort of virtuoso performance that I learned by the way was done by Ludwig's wife Serena who is a violinist oh. uh, that is her composition um, that the orchestra Amazing. did like one like five minute recording non-stop of and absolutely worked and he put that in the film it's incredible but that solo is used at a point in the film where they're really trying to get into Oppenheimer's mind and make you see what he is visualizing and envisioning with you know flashes of atoms splitting and the universe and all the rest of it (laughs) and the violin is doing some incredible things there um but as you mentioned that really clever idea of the stomping of the feet mm. as t- to to be the stomping of the feet to help you put you into Oppenheimer's mindset when he's getting overwhelmed pressure. with pressure mm. and with guilt that is a genius idea um and it's used so effectively um yeah, you know, it, it's used multiple times. The one that I'm thinking of right now is in the aftermath of the detonation of the bomb, and he's given a certain speech. And that scene, I think I mean <laughs> there's so many scenes I like that was like one of my favourite scenes of the movie. But that <laughs> scene was so compelling. Yeah. Um, and then large part of the reason why is that score. So I cannot wait to listen to it, back to it on, on its own. I know there's a piano theme for Kitty and Oppenheimer's relationship that is very very haunting i like that too um but there's a lot going on i as i say had a nice hour-long chat with ludwig so if you want more insights into what exactly went into the score uh, look out for it um it, it should hopefully be up by the time you're listening to this but it's it's a really fascinating piece of work and that's again one of the things that i'll be looking to see and Pick out more of the stuff that he did on second, on second round and, and on second for sure. It's it's a big score. It really um, and
0: watching it in the BFIR max and the score really comes to life. Um, it was, I, said, I think I said to you, I was like he sat throughout the whole film like two rows in front of me, and mm. I was like, God, that must be so magical watching your work like that, just. Mm-hmm with the picture and everything on the bfi imax um Mm -hmm. one of my friends bless her is a bit worried about um like sensory like overload and like with imax screenings and like the bomb going off and whilst i like the score for me is very overwhelming at times um but it's meant to be because it's what you said it's when it's when oppenheimer's feeling overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and all this haunting visions that we see of like Again I, I don't want to spoil it for people, but we we tap into his mind and we see what he sees um mm-hmm. and it's scary and that's mm. why you need this big score with the thumping off the feet, mm. the violence, like everything coming to a climax because that's what's that's what's in his mind,
1: yeah well that's what's so genius about this score and Ludwig score for tenet as well, mm. and he's made a habit out of this in his previous scores as well, but having the soundscape of the movie and the instrumentals of the actual score intertwine and intermingle um, and having the personality of the movie be reflected in the score. Like Time and Nolan are synonymous. <laughs> and yeah. Tenet was in a special exercise or it was a special exercise in having those two things intertwine. But if you look at how that's affected in the score. He's recording tracks and then reversing them and rewinding them, he's running them through filters to make them sound unique. Like a lot of the interviews I read in preparation for my chat with Ludwig, were of him saying that with technology being where it is now, he wants everything to sound fresh. He doesn't want you to really be able to identify a particular instrument at times because he's doing so many things with them with tech yeah and how and how he's sort of altering them and that is really really cool just on one level i love when composers really go to the next level in order to sort of get a unique sound i put ludwig in that conversation i put daniel pemberton absolutely in that conversation i've had conversations with other composers like henry jackman who have done Ridiculous things in order to get a certain sound and put it into the score, but yeah. this is another example of that. And that stomping, which you, which we've mentioned, is the perfect example of music and sound intertwining to put you more into the personality of the movie and the personality yeah. of the character. It's so cleverly done. I cannot wait to listen to this thing on this Yeah. Song. It's going to be special.
0: Daniel Pemberton was also at the premiere.
1: Um, yes, I. It, one, <laughs> one of the things that um Ludwig told me is that because I asked him about you know as, as, his, as his stature has as its stature grown how has it felt like to become more within the the composer community because being a composer is, is a solitary job and talking to people who are in the trenches with you to the degree who get it, it hits different. And he yeah. mentioned that he just went to lunch with Daniel Pemberton the other day, and they were um, talking about stuff. So it was really cool.
0: <laughs> yeah, Daniel Pemberton rave review of Oppenheimer, especially love with score. Based what you said. Yeah, it's it's how it all plays, especially with the visuals. Because, I mean. I feel like we're stating the obvious here when you should see this on the biggest screen possible Oh, one hundred because it's practical as well. It all feels so real. And I was very, I'm very fortunate to have seen it twice now in 70 millimeter film. And cause it just looks beautiful. It just, it, I said, it just feels real. Um, I think the color, the use of color visuals, it's all, it's all, everything's a perfect marriage. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I yeah. think, this is a good point as we come to our concluding thoughts about I don't want to Mm. know how it ranks for you but I want to know how it compares to other Nolan films for Mm. you.
1: Well this is definitely my favourite Nolan film in a while because as you know I was not the biggest fan of Tenet. um, (gasps) Come on!
0: This is a a better film than Tenet and we know I love Tenet so yeah. Yeah
1: Yeah, no I just with, with Tenet like I feel like part of the filmmaker's job is to meet the audience halfway and to give you enough to make sure you understand enough of what's going on in the moment that you can enjoy the film and i don't think Tenet achieved that like i i i love inception i don't know everything that's going on but i know enough to love it with tenant i was just like what in the hell am i watching so i was not the biggest fan of that um but this would be this would be high up in my Nolan rankings, because yeah. I think when it gets to it I think it, it's really interesting it it features a lot of the Nolan tenets and that is you know non judgmental and that it's all about the consequences of actions that's a very nolan trait mm-hmm. um I feel like he is doing some things here that are at the i think he's doing some things here that are among. The best of his work, compared to the other stuff, like in terms of the female characters, especially Emily Blunt, you may have turned me on that a little bit, a little bit, because I do think this is one of one of the better written, uh, Nolan characters, even though it's it's not perfect. But I think he's he's improving in that realm for sure. Um, and yeah, the the the, the more quandary, and the ethical decisions at the heart of this, they're so interesting to me. Um, and again, it's rare for me to watch a three-hour film and be like, you know what? I want to watch that again. Let's rewind it. IMAX. Yeah, you. Yeah, tell your people. I'm <laughs> thinking my seat. Watch it. We'll do That, that whole 11-mile yeah,
0: yeah. reel. <laughs> yeah. um, I, 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 like, I think I said at the start, I need time to think about how it ranks. But this is mm-hmm. very much like, this is a Christopher Nolan film. Like, it just is. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. there's like a certain feel to his movies and as you said like the, the explorations of the consequences actions and morals in terms mm-hmm. of how it's different to his previous work um there's a lot less action here um yeah. as we said it's very talky it's very it's very human perhaps his most mm-hmm. human movie yet it's constantly in debate constantly in reflection mm-hmm. i'd say it's much more of a psychological thriller in terms of putting us in his minds than maybe mm-hmm. his other films i think some people have said it's his most intimate movie yet and i understand where they're coming from in a sense you really are in oppenheimer's mind but Mm -hmm. i've always felt like i've lived in the minds of chris nolan's characters like (laughs) Cobb in inception Mm -hmm. batman Like i've always felt close to Mm -hmm. these people i think he's always done a good job of that i suppose it's just because the focus isn't but again the focus isn't so much on oppenheimer it's the minds of everyone Mm -hmm. um it didn't make me sob in the way that something like Interstellar does. Um, mm. It's not emotional like in that sense, but it is an emotion. It's like a different type of emotion. It is distressing, like it's, it's a distressing. Very
1: distressing. The, the, the the I mean, if you're not impacted in some way by the final closing minutes of this film, then Ooh. I, I, <laughs> I <laughs> yeah. have to question. Um, but the last, uh, the yeah. last line. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. But yeah no i i just think it's very clever like it for me right now my favorite Nolan film is the prestige excellent choice.
0: Um, i mean they are all excellent uh, choices as someone who loves a bit of close-up magic
1: oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah yeah every time i watch the prestige i take something new from it and i'm always amazed at how in plain sight the clues are yeah yet it never takes away from the movie as a whole and it's just so really cleverly done and even though I know the big twist I'm always consistently impressed with what, is managed to, the, the, with what you managed to pull off with that film I think Oppenheimer is clever in different ways mm-hmm. and I do think that I'm going to be able to peel stuff, other stuff away on multiple viewings of the film not in the same way as I did the Prestige but yeah Enormous, a similar kind of way, and I'm in, I'm very intrigued to to sort of see how it's going to play for me on repeat viewings. But yes. right now, my rank is probably I've got the Prestige one, Inception two, and I think Batman Begins three, Dark Knight four, and that is as far as I'm willing to go down my line <laughs> at this point. Um, but I could see Oppenheimer five. I could yeah. see Oppenheimer five. Yeah.
0: And in terms of if we had, if you had to give a star rating now, if I am pushing you 4 <laughs> one.
1: Four stars. Four stars. Four That's stars fine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously, you are going twenty um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: as many stars as possible. Um, I, I, I'm. It's such a rich, complicated movie. Like, it's, I'm just mm. in awe of it, to be honest, um, mm. as I always am whenever I watch a Christopher Nolan film. This is. It's just. It's just some, It's just quite something special. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, that was a long chart. We didn't know, like, yeah.
1: <laughs> I <laughs> we think we did well.
0: We, we think it well. So I yeah. think uh, it's just time to say thank you, Amon, for joining me to discuss Oppenheimer. Where can we see more of your work and stalk you online?
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was an absolute pleasure uh, coming on your pod once again to talk some Nolan. Yes. Um, I am at Amon Woman on Twitter, on Instagram and on Threads, uh-huh. uh, I I I'm you know, doing all the things in uh, preparation for the day that Twitter finally goes boom because Elon. With the way things are going, it looks like it's going that way. Um. So yeah, come and find me. Come and talk to me about Ludwig Goranson Come and talk to me about how awesome Emily Murray is. <laughs> come and talk to me about Nolan Me Nolan Pod. I'm looking forward to it. It's yeah.
0: And you'll obviously share all your interviews with Ludwig on your socials, so if people want to see that, yes. head there. And just yeah. a reminder that my interviews with Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, and a certain Christopher Nolan can <laughs> be found on uh, the website I work on, gamesradar.com, and I'll be putting my links out as well. Um, yeah. I think I think that's it. I think we are done that, one. So, a final you. thank you. Um, I'll catch you later. Bye.
1: Peace. Peace. <laughs>
0: That was me and film journalist Amon Warman reviewing the latest Christopher Nolan feature, Oppenheimer. Don't forget to subscribe, follow us on Twitter at NolanMeNolanYou and get in touch too with your thoughts on the podcast and the film itself when you've seen it. See you next time.